Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Before we start, if this is your first time listening to the 10% Happier podcast, A, welcome. And B, if you like the show, do me a favor. Take a second and subscribe, rate the podcast, and if you really want to hook me up, tell some friends about how they too can find us. Now here's the show. From ABC... This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Dr. Judd Brewer has had a huge impact on my meditation practice and the way I think about meditation for many years. He's an elite neuroscientist who looks into what the practice of meditation does to your brain. He's also a psychiatrist with an expertise in addiction. Interestingly, um, he's never had uh, a classical addiction, um, so that's been a sort of interesting thing to discuss with him, given that um, I've probably got more experience in that area than he does, but he definitely knows how to treat it. And he has a new book, uh, which is called The Craving Mind, which is really good. I highly recommend it. He talks about how we get into these addictive loops, even if it's, you know, unlike so in my case, it was it was drugs, but I'm all, what I realized reading his book is that I've got these addictive loops around things like food and technology, uh, and for a lot of people, uh, it's love and romance, and he really breaks down how we get into these addictive loops and how meditation and mindfulness can help. So enjoy this conversation, because this is a really interesting dude. I always start with the same question, which is how you came to meditation. Your story is actually kind of interesting. Can you lay it on us? Sure. I was suffering. (laughs) (laughs) I had uh, been engaged to my college sweetheart. We we were starting MD-PhD programs together. uh, In St. Louis. In St. Louis. And we broke up right after... You know, signing leases for apartments that were down the hall from each other, (laughs) which is pretty funny. I can say that now. It wasn't at the time. You were really young to be engaged right out of college. Yeah. They kind of brainwash us at at Princeton to, you know, marry each other so they'll get more donations or something like that. Yeah. Well, in this case, the brainwashing didn't work. (laughs) So you were freaking out. You were starting this incredibly stressful MD, PhD program, and your ex-fiance was living a few doors down from you. Yes, and I was having trouble sleeping for the first time probably in my life. And somehow this uh, John Kabat-Zinn book landed in my lap, you know, his full catastrophe living. I read a bit of it and started listening to the cassette tapes. Let me just jump in because John Kabat-Zinn, for those who don't know him, he's kind of the grandfather of modern mindful, mon, modern secular mindfulness. He doesn't like the word secular, but he's not here so uh, to, to punch me. Um, but basically, he invented this thing called mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is what has been studied in the labs and really given a lot of credence uh, to mindfulness. And you kind of now work for him because you work at the Center for Mindfulness in Massachusetts where he's, what, the president emeritus or something like that? He's emeritus, yes. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, okay, so you found his book. I found his book, and it was a new, you know, it was a new phase of my life. I was starting medical school, and at the time, I just decided, you know, this might be a good time to try something else new. And so I started meditating my first day of medical school. And how did it go at first? I fell asleep pretty regularly <laughs> for about six months. That makes me feel better. I was just meditating slash sleeping uh, <laughs> before you came. Um, but not only did you fall asleep, you also were kind of banging your head up against the wall in some ways. Yes, I think 
and it wasn't just the first six months. I think for several years, if not more than several years, I was using what I knew uh, to try to meditate. And what I knew was kind of this brute force method of, you know, let's think my way, let's force my way, let's push my way through whatever the problem is. Yeah, I mean, a little background on you that you also talk about in the book that I think is really interesting that I didn't actually know until several years into knowing you, but it's very, very compelling is that you had grown up in a not a wealthy household. Um, I think you use the word poor in the book um, in Indianapolis, single mother, father had left the family. And I, I it had she had she's a remarkable person who had put herself through law school, if I recall, mm-hmm. while you guys were on food stamps and you had, and she had. Instilled in you a very sort of hard charging attitude. Yes, my mom is amazing. She raised four kids by herself, and at one point we were on food stamps. I think when she was in law school, at that, at that point we were not. Um, and she, you know, she was providing for all of us, even putting us through. Uh, we all went to Jesuit high schools because she felt that education was really important. And, and in the Indianapolis, the Jesuit high school was was very good. So, yes, I learned the go-for-it attitude from my mom. Yeah, I mean, from that background to Princeton to an MD-PhD program at one of the most prestigious institutions, I can understand how you you would approach meditation wanting to win. (laughs) It's so ridiculous thinking about it now, but yes, that's what it was. So I would sweat through T-shirts in the middle of meditation retreats, like just going for it, trying to force my concentration. Yeah, it, it didn't it, – looking back at that, it didn't work out so well, uh, except that I learned that that was the wrong way to do it. But you really stuck with it. Why? I like challenges. <laughs> I, I, that's one way to put a positive spin on it. And I just – I you know, I just keep – when I get – fixated on something, I just keep going for it. And it affected the course of your, it really affected the course of your medical career. It did. I had started meditating just as a way to, you know, be less angry, (laughs) you know, uh, to relax while I was uh, going through medical school and going through graduate school. And I was studying you know, I was studying the molecular basis of stress and how stress affects the immune system. So making, you know, genetically modified mice and studying uh, immune system development and function and just meditating. You know, I started meditating, you know, I was doing it daily and joined a community that I would sit with once a week and then started going on weekend and then week-long retreats. So through graduate school, it kind of built and built and built. But I was really seeing this as separate from medical school and separate from graduate school. Well, when I went back into my third year of medical school, they kind of split it up. You do a couple of years, and then you do your graduate program long enough so that you can forget everything you learned in medical school, and then you go back on the wards. Mm-hmm. I had, you know, I was thinking, well, you know, I'll just see what how this might help a little bit, and I was shocked by how helpful it was to pay attention as I was, you know, interviewing patients, as I was working with team members and all of this. So. At, by the time I graduated from my MD-PhD program, I had decided to go into psychiatry, which was the last profession I thought I would do. You know, it's not portrayed particularly well in the media and um, also had found that um, I wanted to stop doing animal work. I wanted to really work with people because that's ultimately where the rubber meets the road. 
And in particular, you started looking at addictions, right? I did. You know, I was drawn to, well, the underdogs. Um, I could relate to being an underdog growing up. And there was something about people with addictions. Not only did they get the beat down from society and from themselves, in particular, they're often very, very hard on themselves, but also they were speaking the same language as the language that I had learned it with the Buddhist psychology as I was learning um, the theoretical background behind the practices that I was doing. What do you mean by that? They're speaking the same language. Craving, clinging. Literally, they were talking about getting caught up in their cravings. And I said, oh, I know that language. <laughs> so how, t- for, for people who aren't familiar with the Buddhist psychology, how, how, how talk about that intersection. Well, the most famous, uh, I think the most famous tenets of Buddhism are the Four Noble Truths. And so this first truth is that there's like an unsatisfactoriness. And the second noble truth says that the unsatisfactoriness comes from craving. And then the third noble truth says, hey, if you pay attention and let go of the craving, that's going to help a whole lot. So, you know, of these four noble truths, basically all four of them center around craving as a central tenant. That was fascinating to me. And and at what point did you really decide to – focus your research because you're not only a a clinician you're doing this really cutting edge research on the impact of meditation on the brain the first studies we did were to just see if there was an impact on on people with addictions because i wanted to find a behavioral signal before i spent time trying to understand neurobiologically what was happening so i learned how to become a clinical researcher. I did that even during my residency training at Yale. They had, a, they fortunately had a program where I could do some research during residency training. So I basically trained up to become a clinical researcher as compared to a mouse researcher and did my first clinical study during my third year of residency where we looked at mindfulness training compared to gold standard treatment, which is cognitive behavioral therapy for alcohol and cocaine dependence. And how did it do? It went it, the prog- the uh, study went pretty well. We it was as good as gold standard. Now this is a pilot study, so you know it has to be taken with a grain of salt. But as far as relapse to drug use, it was as good as gold standard. And when we looked at physiologic and psychological measures of stress, when we stressed people out, because that's a big thing that causes people to relapse, we found that they did better. They were less stressed out, and their physiology showed that as well. So let's break that down again. You're treating people who are addicted to cocaine and alcohol, and there were, quote-unquote, gold standard treatments out there, the, the best treatments available uh, that, that were commonly used with folks in these categories. And you came in and said, well, let's use a mindfulness-based approach either instead or on top of, and then you tested which one did better. Yes, we we randomized people to get gold standard or mindfulness training. What and how do you use mindfulness to deal with? Co- I mean, as a man who has got some history of cocaine, what? How do you use mindfulness to deal with cocaine addiction? Well, I can tell you now how we do it, which is slightly different than how we first did these studies. But basically, the you know the habitual reaction is when there's a craving. Well, cravings typically don't feel pleasant because they say do something. You know, yeah. you, you're you're lacking something. Yeah, jumping out of your skin. Right. So we want to run away from those. We either you know tamp them down until we can't do that anymore, or we um, we indulge in them. So we give them what they want. Paradoxically, here mindfulness is about turning toward those cravings. So we trained people to 
instead of, you know, reinforce those old habits through succumbing or, or, or trying to resist them to just turn toward them and get curious about what they actually feel like in their bodies. So like surfing the urge, mm-hmm. as it's sometimes described. Yes. The, the, the urge, I mean, again, I have a lot of urges. So um, uh, an urge would come over you, and instead of either acting on it or trying to pretend it's not there, you just look at it. Like, look at how does it feel in the body? What kind of thoughts am I having? And what you will see is that it may be painful, but it ends. It may be painful, but it ends. And if we inject an attitude of curiosity into that, so cravings are unpleasant, but is what does curiosity feel like? Definitely pleasant. So we can flip the valence of that from unpleasant to pleasant in the moment if there's a strong level of curiosity there. And that's also an important aspect of mindfulness. The second factor of awakening is is investigation or curiosity. Yeah, so there are, just to, just to put some context around what you said, the, the factors of awakening, there are these seven factors of awakening that the Buddha talks about. The Buddha was pretty OCD, had a lot of lists, and <laughs> one of them was the seven factors of, of awakening, meaning basically just, uh, he's talking about enlightenment, but one we could talk about it more and just sort of, waking up into your actual life would be a, maybe a more down-to-earth way to put it. And mm-hmm. the sec, the second factor, the first one is mindfulness, right? And the second one is investigation, which mm-hmm. means just sort of, and it's a huge part of mindfulness, which is just taking an interest in what your actual experience is right now. Uh, so so I guess I, when I'm, I'm, I'm putting myself in your shoes from back in the day when you were confronted with a bunch of patients who were addicted to cocaine and you said, I'm going to teach you how to meditate. Did they say, did they drop a lot of expletives on you or did they think you were crazy? The, so we, yes, we tried to approach it in a way that where they wouldn't like look for the door and run out immediately. We started actually with, again, one of the tenets of, of Buddhism, which is uh, formally described as dependent origination, but in modern days described very aptly as positive and negative reinforcement. And we said, you know what? We're going to first see if you can relate to uh, to what we're teaching or if we can relate to what your experience Did you is. talk about the Buddha? No. Okay. You talked about positive and negative reinforcement. Well, we basically said, okay, do you guys have triggers? Yes. They all nod their heads. Okay. Do you have cravings? Yes. They all nod their heads. Do you do something about those cravings? Yes. They all nod their heads. And we say, okay, let's just start by paying attention to that loop. And notice what happens each time you indulge in that craving, you reinforce a memory that says, oh, do this again. You know, and, and this again goes back to the, the early times. There's this, there's this saying, you know, what the mind frequently thinks and ponders upon thus becomes the inclination of the mind. This so, is a Buddhist expression. Yeah. Means, yeah. And that's basically saying, yes, if you do operant conditioning, you're going to reinforce habits. So um, let me just uh, amplify your points just based on my reading of your excellent book, The Craving the Craving Mind. What you noticed, which is really interesting, is in modern psychology, um, based on the work of B.F. Skinner, I believe, mm-hmm. there was this idea of operant operant conditioning, which is sort of reward-based learning, um, which is that there's a trigger. So it might be I see a commercial for a cigarette, uh, and then there's the behavior, which is I smoke the cigarette, and then there's the reward, which is the dopamine rush from smoking the aforementioned cigarette. So we we all operate on this kind of all, all the time, whether we're aware of it or not. It, what you noticed was that this actually tracks almost 
you know, foursquare with the way the Buddha described uh, uh, the way we operate. He called it dependent origination, which is that there's this series. His 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 description was much more baroque. Uh, with my, many more steps and some metaphysical stuff that we may or may not buy involving rebirth, but um, basically describe this cause and effect chain mm-hmm. that leads to us wanting, doing, getting a reward, and then doing again. Yes. Am I exp- explaining that correctly? Yes, and I'll just add that the loop, they called it samsara, which literally translated means endless wandering. Mm. <laughs> because we keep feeding it, but we're not actually fixing the core root of the problem. Yeah, well, you can think of it like a hamster wheel. Yes, absolutely. And and so you what you noticed was that the the Buddhist lingo and 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 philosophy and psychology that you'd been studying as a kind of side deal uh, for a while, you know, matched up with this uh, with modern psychology. And you said, all right, let's give it a try. Let's see. If we can use this on these addictive behaviors and and tell us what happened next. Well, it was one of those moments when that realization came together that it was like all the hair stood up on my arms. It it was just amazing. I was like, this cannot be a coincidence. This cannot be a coincidence. These guys figured it out. You know, they didn't have rats. They didn't have graduate students to torture. They didn't have computers. Like just by investigating their own experiences, they figured all of this out 2,500 years ago. You know, Eric Kandel got the Nobel Prize for this in 2001. And these guys, you know, they scooped Eric. They they, they figured this out way before Eric Kandel or B.F. Skinner or even, um, you know, any of these early researchers. Um, now, I personally am, and I make no bones about this, totally fascinated by what the Buddhists did and continue to do. But in your milieu... And by this time, you had graduated from your MD, PhD, PhD program and were studying at Yale. Mm-hmm. When you started talking about the Buddha, how did that go down? <laughs> I think the words that were often either said to me or behind me were career killer. <laughs> <laughs> well, little did they know. Well, it's it, not turned out to be a career killer. Yeah, and to be honest, little did I know either. I had a mentor uh, named Bruce Roundsville who was really open-minded, and he said, I don't care what you do as long as it's good science. And I was very drawn to, you know, as a psychiatrist, and, a, and I really wanted to see how we could help our patients. And the current treatments just were not at the standards that I think any of us want to see them at. So I was really interested in in looking for things that worked. And I had found in my own life that this had been very helpful for me with working with my cravings. So, you know, I had no idea what I was getting into, but I just knew that even if it was going to kill my career, I would rather do that and fail than do something mainstream that I wasn't excited but did, about. Did, did, okay, did Indianapolis play a role here, this, 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 this determination bequeathed to you by your uh, mom who was able to achieve so much in, with, with so little? Were you, you know, did, did that stick with you at a moment like that where you're like, I, I'm on to something here and I don't care if people disapprove, you know, have doubt about it right now. I'm going to prove them wrong. I think there is something to that. You know, my college, my high school college counselor told me I'd never get into Princeton, so that's why I applied. <laughs> and so here they're doing the same thing. They're saying, you know, you can't do this. This isn't going to work. And it just gets me excited. You know, and to me, it's an empirical question. Let's see if it works or not. And regardless, we'll learn something along the way. So it was a, it was quite a risk, but I, you know, 
that's something that I I'm in, I guess I enjoy doing. Yeah, I mean, and it's and it's actually redounded to the benefit of your patients, most mm-hmm. importantly. Mm-hmm. So you started with these pilot studies with cocaine and alcoholism as compared to what you described as the gold standard treatment at the time. But you you went on from there to other addictions. Can you tell us about that? Yes, the next study we did was with smoking cessation. And there were two things I wanted to look at there. One was, could, you know, smoking is often seen as one of the hardest addictions to quit. A lot of my patients will come in and they'll have, you know, they'll quit the hard drugs, but they're they're like, doc, you know, I, I just don't know what to do about the smoking. Often they've started smoking way before they started using other drugs and they can reinforce that habit if they smoke one pack a day, 20 times a day. So they'd come in having reinforced this 20 times a day, 365 days a year for 20 years. That's a lot of reinforcement. It's, you, you can't really go on that much of a cocaine bender, right? You're, you're going to hit rock bottom yeah. way earlier. I tried a few nights. <laughs> so we wanted to see, you know, with this very ingrained habit, could we actually help people kick that habit? It's also the leading cause of morbidity, preventable morbidity and mortality in the U.S. So it's, a, it's still a big health issue. And the other thing we wanted to look at was could we strip out the components you know, the study we'd done with alcohol and cocaine dependence was a combination of mindfulness with a relapse prevention program that Alan Marlett had developed that's very effective. And we wanted to see, you know, what if we just teach mindfulness? What if we just teach one thing and one thing only without, you know, giving people more of a kitchen sink approach? Will it still work? And? It did. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, in this case, was better than the gold standard, right? It was. We were just looking for it to be as good as. And we found at the end of treatment, it was twice as good. And wow, four months twice later- Twice as good? Five times better. At, four months later, five times better. Yes. So at, re, uh, at relapse re, prevention. Yes. So people had relapsed to smoking in the gold standard treatment more than in our program. And let me just say to listeners, who anybody who's smoking, uh, Judd has an excellent app called Craving to Quit that is- very much worth checking out, which teaches you this stuff via, on your phone, so you can use the instrument of your distraction to overcome your distraction and perhaps overcome uh, this habit which is killing you. Um, I don't know if you want to say anything about the app. Well, it's basically that treatment that we did in person. We cut it into bite-sized pieces so that people could learn it on a daily basis, so five to ten minutes of training. What we had also learned in our in-person study was really interesting that even though we were training people twice a week, they would go several days and forget the practices early in the training. And we said, oh, we got to stop that. Let's give people the, the tools at their fingertips. So a couple of things. One is we could give them those tools right at their fingertips when they were smoking because typically when people go out to smoke, they'll have a cigarette in one hand and their cell phone in another. Mm-hmm. So we might as well use that for good as compared to distraction. The other piece is, you know, they can learn these skills in the context where they've learned to smoke, which is really critical. They don't learn to smoke in our clinic. And so it's somewhat of an artificial place where they're trying to learn a skill outside of where their normal context is. Here we can give it to them right in their context. Uh, And I think that giving the bite-sized pieces and allowing people to go back and review practices um, is really helpful. We can give them those in-the-moment exercises right at their fingertips. And we can also give them an online community where they can support each other, and even I can moderate that community and help support them along the way. And we've actually just added an in-app coaching component that was actually 
inspired by your 10% Happier app. And and uh, Derek and Ben at 10% Happier helped us quite a bit in just helping us through how that works. But we can basically give people, you know, asynchronous coaching so that we've, you know, they've got us by their side. That's awesome. So, um, I just wonder, there may be people listening who are like, okay, I smoke. There's no way meditation is going to help me with this. And I'm sure you hear this all the time. So what do you say to those folks? (laughs) Don't believe us. (laughs) Try it. And it's not just about saying, okay, meditate instead of smoke. We start by uh, having them really pay attention Actually, I love this. One of the first things you say to people is go smoke a ton right now. Smoke as much as you want. But one, the only thing that we add to that is pay attention when you smoke. And that's a really critical aspect. We have people coming back saying, I can't believe this. I smoked for 20 years and I didn't realize how bad it tastes. I've been doing this 20 times a day and I, how did I miss that? So there's this quality that you know, our brain says, give me my dopamine. I don't care what the consequences are. And when we say, well, we'll give you your dopamine, but we're going to show you everything that you get as part of it. In that moment, experientially, you know, cigarettes don't actually taste that good. And I had somebody just just, just describing to me how when they inhaled that it felt like burning going into their mm-hmm. mouth and into their lungs. This, uh, this is a patient in my group that I run uh, at, at our clinic. And he was saying, I can't, you know. It, it wow, you know, and so they just wake up to the fact that this isn't as good as they thought, which is actually critical and goes back to the Buddhist teachings. It's about exploring gratification to its end. When we explore gratification to its end, you know, he described it, knowledge and vision arose. And what that means is we never have this devil on our shoulder saying, oh, no, no, but you missed something. You missed something. We're like, no, dude, <laughs> I checked it all out and there is nothing good here. So with smoking, it that's you know, it's a little more straightforward than like stress eating or something like that, where we do have to eat to survive. But that's the first step in getting the energy to go through the program is is like having this wake up call that says, oh, this really isn't that great. And then they say, OK, I need to do something about this. So we're kind of rubbing their face in their own suffering that they hadn't noticed before. So they're they're paying attention to it. And you're actually, you mentioned eating. That's mm-hmm. the other thing you've been taking on, which is sort of unhealthy eating, mm-hmm. overeating. And uh, and have you done some studies yet on that? We just finished our first clinical trial with that. And the eating, so one, when people quit or are afraid of quitting smoking, they're worried about gaining weight um, because they'll substitute eating for smoking. So we had people report that they were actually changing their relationship to eating, just reading our smoking scripts as we Mm. were developing that program. So there was a big aha moment for us to say, oh, wait a minute, let's look into this more. And that's when I uh, uncovered that this habit loop is actually probably set up more for us to remember where food is than to learn to smoke. So the the trigger behavior reward habit loop that you're referring to earlier, right? Exactly the same. So instead of, you know, you get stressed and you smoke a cigarette, you get stressed and you eat a cupcake or Oreos. So the trigger is the stress, the behavior is the eating, and the reward is the dopamine again. Yeah. And you, you're and the evolutionary psychologist will say that the reason, the reward, the dopamine that we get from eating whatever is probably based back to caveman times to help us remember where we found the food. Yep. Dopamine helps lay down context-dependent memory. Um, so 
you just let me let me um, brag on you a little bit more. You also have another app which is called Eat Right Now, which is which does for people with um, eating uh, difficulties of any variety, either uh, really severe or minor. Um, for those who have does the same thing uh, for uh, as you do for those with um, smoking addiction in the in the um, Craving to Quit app. Um, and in fact. We did um, kind of a taster preview version on the 10% Happier app. If you go to the 10% Happier app, you'll see a little course with Judd about using mindfulness uh, as a sort of kind of kryptonite for overeating. Um, uh, but I wanted to ask you about that just on a personal note because yes. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to uh, bug you on a personal note on a bu- bunch of things here. Um, but so I did the course with you. I was the host of the thing, and and but we talked a lot about the fact that I have I have notwithstanding the fact that I am scrawny, um, I overeat a lot, and so I'm like I have the worst of both worlds. Like I'm kind of skinny, but I have a belly, um, uh, and and a lot of it is around sugar, mm-hmm. and it's pro- almost certainly because I'm just not following the advice. But I'm you know I put a great deal of time and attention into my daily meditation practice and yet struggle mightily with eating crap that I shouldn't eat. And then I, I, I follow it through. I see what it gets me, which is nothing good. Mm-hmm. Like yesterday morning, I was on the set of Good Morning America. We had a bunch of candy because we always do that. We have like junk at the end of the show. And I ate like half a jar of disgusting sugar and I was so sick and so depressed the rest of the day. Really, I was with my kid at night and I was like feeling awful and looking how fat I am. And um, and and I like, I'm not, can't guarantee that I won't do it again. So like, what am I doing wrong here? Yeah. So for the record, um, I'm sitting across from you and you're not, <laughs> you don't have a belly. I do but, though. Well, so. Okay, maybe body dif- dysmorphism and... <laughs> Addiction to sugar. We'll talk about that after the show. <laughs> <laughs> no, we can talk about it. It's, it's all fair here. But I think what you're pointing out is something really important. So it, this is after your show that you did that. So after you do something that takes a lot of energy, I, um, you know, I'm sure GMA is, it, you know, that's that's a that's work. You're working here. Yeah. This is when our brains start to get depleted. So the prefrontal cortex, which is the youngest part of our brain from an evolutionary standpoint, it's great at doing you know, the restraint and all of that stuff while we've got plenty of energy. But when we get tired, so there's this acronym HALT, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. That's, those are in, so stress, basically. That's a big uh, reason that that prefrontal tor- cortex goes offline. So all of the any type of, if you had used any type of cognitive control in the past, so even as a part of the exploration, then all that goes out the window when you're stressed. out. In other words, if I was relying on me just to explain to myself logically through my prefrontal cortex, hey man, if you eat this, you're going to feel like crap. Don't do that. That breaks down when you're tired. It does. It does. So that I think of that as knowledge, which is really important, but it. It becomes embodied as wisdom the more times we see clearly what actually happens. So your wisdom develops from you remembering the rest of the day. So the next time you go to, you know, after the show and there's a bunch of candy, you can just recall, you know, uh, mindfulness, sati, literally means, you know, to remember. You remember that time, you know, when you were with your kid and after the show and, and it didn't feel that great. See how that affects you reaching into the candy yeah, jar. You know what? I mean, I've been beating myself up about this a lot because I've had the privilege of 
learning about this from you directly, reading all of the scripts that you wrote for Eat Right Now, which are great, which when I say the scripts, which is basically if you get, if you download Eat Right Now, you'll see Judd talking to you. And I read everything he says to you on there. So I've read all of that. I've read your book. I've sat with you innumerable times and talked about this stuff. And I practice meditation two hours a day. So I'm like pretty in tune with all of the negative consequences from binging sugar. Mm-hmm. And, but I am profoundly addictive in my mindset. Mm-hmm. And I, what I'll do is like Sunday night, for example, this past Sunday night, I ate a bunch of sugar with my wife. I was miserable all day Monday. And I told myself what I always tell myself, which is never again. Yeah. And then the candy shows up on the set Saturday morning and I do it. Right. So the telling yourself never again, that's the cognitive control piece. What it, and this is different for all of us. So genetics play a role. Every, you know, all, a lot of other things play a role. What you're describing is you've got knowledge, you know, to the hilt. You you know how this works cognitively, and you're a smart guy, and you get all of this. Now it's about being patient and paying attention every moment that you can when you're indulging, because that will help dismantle that loop on an experiential wisdom level. And we, you know. It's that is very individual for some of us. You know, I've had people who are like, yep, I now every single time I eat a piece of pie, I eat what he calls an inch, (laughs) you know, as compared to a a fifth of a pie. And I really pay attention and I enjoy it. So like that was something that somebody was able to nail in a couple of weeks. But I think especially, you know, if you've got a genetic predisposition, this is something that it's just about every single opportunity that you have. Every time you indulge, that's the moment where you can bow to that as a teacher and say, oh, what can I learn from this? And importantly, you know, you're describing beating yourself up. That we think of that as going in reverse. So if we beat ourselves up over something that we've done in the past – um, that doesn't help us move forward. That actually reinforces similar types of habit patterns. Why? Why does it? Yeah. Why and how? I don't – that's a great question. I, I'm not sure I could explain it completely neuroscientifically. But if you think of the – you know, if think of this habit loop, there can be reinforcing aspects of beating ourselves up. So, for example, um, if you think of – um, let's let's just do this together. So when you're afraid, if you were to break it down into a feeling of contraction versus expansion, would you say that being afraid is contracting or expanding? Contracting for sure. Okay. Yes. Um, the dopamine rush that comes from anticipating using, is it contracting or expanding? Contracting? Yeah. Now, how about when you get excited about doing something like, um, you know, you're about to interview somebody that you're really excited to interview, contracting or expanding? Often that's expanding. Okay. So let's unpack that a little bit more. Um, As long as I'm not nervous. If it's like, oh, I knew I was going to see you today. That was an expansive, like, oh, I'm going to see my man Judd, and we're going to talk about all this uh, incredibly interesting stuff. But if I'm going to interview, you know, some if it's going to be contentious or something like that, I get a little nervous. Right. Okay. So the nervousness aside, um, you know, and we can maybe we can unpack this in a second because there, you know, there's often this mistaken um, quality of where there's excitement that's mistaken. You know, there was a teacher Saida Upandita who described, 
you know, he said, we, the mind mistakes excitement for happiness. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. I, and it was on my list of things to talk to you about. So we'll, we'll place that to the side for now. Now, let's go back to beating yourself up. When you beat yourself up, does it feel contracting or expanding? Contracting. Yeah. Yeah. So I was thinking about myself. It's all the yeah. story of me. So there may be an experiential quality to that contraction that lines up with this whole habit loop and the self-reference around that. Hmm. You know, the one thing you said that I realized that I'm not doing, notwithstanding all of the knowledge that I've accrued from hanging out with you and also some of the experiential wisdom that I think I've like maybe at least on a minuscule level uh, accrued from, you know, being able to see how you have to have the self-awareness that that one generates through meditation. The one thing I'm not doing unless I'm on a meditation retreat is really paying attention as I indulge. Mm-hmm. So when I'm mm-hmm. mowing all that sugar, I'm actually not paying attention. And I think that might short circuit things, even though you've told me a million times to do it. Right. Absolutely. And that's where we a lot of our folks really see the big insights is. So, again, I. Sorry to keep going back to the Buddhist teachings, but that no, no, no. This is a, a you're in a safe place for this. <laughs> dude Go. Was so there was in one of the suttas he was giving advice to his son Rahula, and he said, "When you're about to do an action, reflect on it before. But if you can't, reflect on it during. But if you can't, reflect on it afterwards. And basically, you can refl- you're good at reflecting on this afterwards, <laughs> and you tend to beat yourself up a little bit. So that part might be optional, but just reflecting on it and saying, oh, what can I learn from this afterwards helps us learn something. As we develop that wisdom, we can then start to plop it in, plop that awareness in as we're doing it. And then that drives us to be able to reflect on it before we do it. The the story I'm telling myself is that I am so sort of uh, deeply addictive in my personality and just as my in my personal history that really probably the only answer around sugar is complete abstinence. That's an interesting story. But you you seemed you have argued again multiple times to my face that actually with the proper application of mindfulness one can enjoy half a cookie. Yes, absolutely. And I've had I've been we run this. Uh, live group at the Center for Mindfulness on Monday nights where we actually pair our Eat Right Now app with in-person support. And a lot of people come in and say, you know, I just have to, you know, quit sugar cold turkey. And they come in and they say, you know, you're not suggesting to do that. And I'm saying, no, because that's, it, it only works until our prefrontal cortex goes offline. So right. there's inherent right. flaw right. in that. We right. want to find something that's sustainable long-term. And so we say, you know, don't worry about like so what they're worried about is like they're like I'm just going to indulge and suddenly I'm going to you know not going to have any control which is pretty much what they're doing already they just don't know it so we say just just go ahead and indulge but pay attention as you do and really see in that moment that you're indulging what it feels like and that's where they start they come back and they're like wow this is I I didn't go crazy and actually I stopped a little bit before you know the previous times that I would stop and We've had people come in repeatedly now saying, you know, their big successes are I ate, you know, I really enjoyed it and I stopped when I was full. I stopped when I was full. I stopped when I was full. So your lesson, your message to me is do the practice you already know how to do. Yes. That's it. It's that simple. That's the beauty of these practices. It's simply about paying attention. It's not about we don't have to keep anything else in mind. We just have to pay attention. So that paying attention, that first factor of awakening 
it makes a lot of sense. If we're not paying attention, we're just going to be on our habit loops. Now, that paying attention is critical. uh, The quality of the mind, as we pay attention, is critical. And this is where I'd messed up in my own practice, that curiosity is the key aspect that you rub those two sticks together and it creates heat so that we have the energy to do more practice and to to actually investigate what our life is like. And that's actually the third factor of awakening, virya, courageous energy. So let's. I'm, I'm glad you brought this up because it brings us full circle back to the beginning of your meditation practice. Because this is a problem for so many people, myself included. We get into meditation and um, it sucks. You know, it's like we we're paying attention to the breath and it's boring. There's a lot of judgment about how boring it is and how bad we are at it, and we're just trying to sort of, as you say, through brute force, bring our attention back to the breath. And um, then we get lost and then we beat ourselves up about it. But you actually, as you said before, discovered that this is not the most fruitful way to go forward. So what is, and uh, I think you, you've given us a little bit of the answer to that, mm-hmm. but what is the answer and how do we apply it? <laughs> well, so this only took me about 10 years to figure out. And I think my teachers are probably like, oh, finally, <laughs> he's, he's starting to understand what we've been trying to, to teach him. Uh, and. After you know going through a number of like long silent retreats where I would sweat through T-shirts and even you know um, even cry on the shoulder of your teacher. Yeah, that was my first week long retreat. I was crying on the shoulder of my who turned out to be my future teacher, Ginny Morgan. I, I had actually gone to a retreat with uh, Bonte Gunaratna, this really famous well you know it, it, uh, monk and teacher who wrote this amazing book. Um, mindfulness in plain English. So it's he's, he, it's very straightforward the way he describes it. I just couldn't do it, or I didn't feel like I could do it. But I was I was doing the brute force methodology, and I was thinking that you know I can do brute force, so I'm just going to brute force through this. And it was only after about ten years that when I was trying to do a more refined concentration practice that I learned uh, that it's not about the brute force at all. So what is it about? Curiosity. I think curiosity is key. Okay, so do I. And you, you've been my teacher on this issue, frankly. Uh, for many years, you're the one who's really put this in my head. But a lot of people are going to say, as I have said, what in the world is there to get curious about with the breath? It is so boring. Yes, I think that's an excellent point. And I think... So there are several things that we can play with there in terms of what is, you know, what in the world is, can we find interesting about the breath? The just getting curious about anything. So if we can kind of ramp up our curiosity, we can then apply it to the breath. So I wouldn't necessarily say, you know, jump right into 30 minutes of breath awareness meditation. I would say let's practice let's let's hone that skill of curiosity and I I'd gone through a period of time where instead of doing sitting meditation I would do a couple of hours of walking meditation in a park near my house and just to really refine that curiosity practice to look at leaves on trees look at the bark even the um patterns in the sidewalk just to see, like, how can I let that curiosity get drawn in? You know, like a three-year-old child. Three-year-olds seem to, they nail this. You know, they, they could look at a blade of grass for a half an hour yeah. and be pretty concentrated on that. So there's something to be learned there. Yeah, I have a two-year-old who's really interested in seeing the contents of his own diaper. So yeah, <laughs> there, there you, you go. go. Yeah, the, the poop meditation. So <laughs> I think that 
that's the place to start. Not necessarily like the breath is magic. It's about the curiosity is the magical quality that um, that our mind has that we can foster. And as we can start to develop it, then we can apply it to things like the breath. Now, the breath also has some very interesting aspects to it that we can dive into. Like, you know, I will often suggest to people, okay, just notice when the beginning, you know, your in-breath ends. Let it just do its thing. If you're doing it right now, well, how do I know when my in-breath is going to end? Hmm, that's interesting. It changes every time. Yeah. So there's a there's a quality there that we can even tap into to this ever-changing nature of our body doing its thing where we just get curious. Oh, wow. Oh, it ended this time there. And that's what it felt like. On the out-breath, when does that end? When is that pause between the breath going to restart, whether it's an in-breath or an out-breath? Oh, that's interesting. So I think we can get curious about anything if we just bring that, you know, if we just bring that quality in and for i mean maybe because i'm a scientist that's something that's come a little more naturally to me than others but i'm like fascinated about all sorts of things and i think that quality is something that we all have we don't we can foster it we can develop it but really i think it's more about uncovering it and you know curiosity itself feels good so it's rewarding in itself you know that's what i love about these this, these practices are so amazing. They actually tap into mm-hmm. this natural reward-based yes, learning process. Yes, yes. So instead of that contracted quality of excitement that comes from you know being about to eat a cookie, we can the replace that behavior with curiosity. So the curiosity is the behavior instead of eating the cookie. The reward, instead of contraction, like oh yeah, that was that was awesome. There's an expansion, which is moving one the quality of expansion to me is is night and day different from contraction it feels so much more you know it's it just feels so much better but the other piece there is it's an intrinsic motivator rather than extrinsic we don't need to eat something to feel good we just need to tap into something that's already there As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. On this issue of curiosity, uh, our mutual meditation teacher, Joseph Goldstein, has said a bunch of things that have helped me. One, and so have you, so I'll just go into a long list of things. Um, One is, um, and you can interrupt me and amplify at any point, one is what I've said to Joseph one time, you know, what is more boring than the breath? You know, it's so boring. And he said, well, you might try meditating with your head underwater. 
and basically meaning you know the breath is not interesting is not uninteresting if you know w- when you really need it and actually it is kind of interesting if you just notice you are breathing anyway you know like you, the body is running without you or as john kabat-zinn has said like the, the nature doesn't let us our thinking cells anywhere near the capacity to breathe like that's just happening without us because if it was up to us we would forget to breathe and die um and so actually just closing your eyes and noticing that this whole system is running without you is interesting um just carrying on with my list here the other thing that joseph's pointed out uh, is that to know that you are breathing frankly to know anything takes no effort whatsoever mm-hmm. so we spend all this time especially type a guys like me and you we come in we think we're going to win at meditation the worst thing you can do actually if you so we make it super effortful but actually if you notice that it is effortless the mind knows that the, yet your breathing feels this, the raw data of the physical sensations of your in-breath and out-breath with no effort whatsoever. Actually, cha- the, the only effort that's required is once you get distracted, which is natural, it requires a little effort to, to, to uh, return your attention. But even that is happening in a way that's out of your control. Like you wake up and nobody's you have you haven't woken up. It's like it's a, waking up has happened. Um, so that's just kind of an interesting thing to look at. And, and it, if I could just add yeah, to that, yeah. even bringing it back, so it can feel like some effort to bring it back to an object. But if there's curiosity, curiosity naturally takes our takes us by the hand and says, "Oh, let's go back." Yeah, or like, how did that happen? How did I wake up? And like, where was I? And and um, you know, that's all absolutely curiosity is huge during all of that. The other thing. That you have said, you have a little mantra, which I love, and I use it all the time in my own meditation practice, uh, especially if I'm outside walking. Uh, and this really goes to the effortlessness of awareness, which is let your senses rip. Mm-hmm. Now, your senses are working all the time, mm-hmm. whether you're papering over them with your own compulsive thinking or not. Now, you could be walking outside and notice none of it because you're thinking about, oh, how am I going to satisfy this craving I have or what am I going to say in my next argument or what are what are the things on my to-do list? So you notice none, nothing of the data that your senses uh, are gathering. But um, in fact, if you just let your senses rip, it is absolutely effortless to just see, hear, feel, uh, and whatever's happening. And not only is it effortless, but when we break through that paper mache that we've covered over it with, feels good. It's amazing. Yeah. I, maybe this is where joie de vivre comes from. Yeah. You know, we just have oh, it's yeah, know. it feels good. Yeah, it, it's for those anybody who hasn't actually done this, it's going to sound a little Pollyanna, like. That, that it feels good to be alive, but actually it does feel good to be alive. <laughs> and it's just no other less cliche, nothing you can say about that that doesn't sound hopelessly cliche, but actually just try it. It feels better than thinking. Here, let me go to another piece of wisdom that you dropped on me. And I talk about Judd is in the last chapter of my book. Um, uh, he's in the, the epilogue or whatever it is, um, where you you talk about B.F. Skinner um, and that B.F. Skinner had this. Th- he's the guy who came up with operant conditioning or reward based learning, the modern psychologist. And um, uh, I th- was he a psychologist? He was. OK, so he had something called a Skinner box where he put a rat and a rat. I can't remember exactly how it works, but basically the rat learns to avoid the places in the box where you get an electric shock and go to the places where you don't. Um that if you can apply this to your own life, it, how does it feel when you're 
contracted into a self-centered craving or anger or whatever. How does that actually feel? If you bring, bring curiosity to that, and then how does it feel if they are actually just kind of letting your senses rip and feeling the wind on your face, noticing whatever you're seeing, noticing whatever you're tasting? If you notice that all day long every day, your li- and, and then you will just naturally, like a rat in a Skinner box, try to avoid the stuff that doesn't feel good. Yes, and I would say, you know, Joseph talks about this in terms of not taking things personally. Where it gets even more interesting is that contraction literally separates us from the rest of the world. So yes. it, like, creates a boundary, whether yes. we're going to, you know, have a, a wall – you know, we're putting up walls between ourselves and the rest of the world. So if you if you stop building a wall and you let that wall come down in that expansive quality, you take that to infinity. Now you don't know where you are because there is no you. This puts us in the territory of flow. All right, say more about that. What is flow? So Mihai Csikszentmihalyi was a psycho- is a psychologist who described flow, I think, back as far as early as the 70s in, in his book, I think, called Flow or something like that. And he described this as a selfless, effortless, timeless, immensely joyful state. There are a number of conditions that need to be met to be in flow. And he, this isn't, by the way, just, this isn't, we're not talking about some B- Buddhist esoteric idea. No, no, we're no. talking about the, this is like being in the zone in sports. This is like exactly, it. this is synonymous with being in the zone. They just use flow. You know, they're synonymous. And he even described meditation as being one way to help people get into flow. If you look at those conditions, this is exactly what not only Buddhism, but pretty, man, pretty much all the spiritual uh, spiritual teachings that I know of. So my wife's a a Bible scholar and she practices in the Christian contemplative tradition. Same thing when they call it small self. So when the small self gets in the way that we can't let God flow through us, that's the same thing as expanding to the point where, you know, we're out of the way and there's no self. So the Buddhists, the Christians, you know, I don't know many other traditions that well. Sufi. Sufi, yeah, Dancing. the Aveda Vedanta, yeah, yeah. The, the whirling dervishes. Lots of things help us not get caught up in ourselves. And that's, that's, what, we're, that's what we're talking about here. That's flow. That's Csikszentmihalyi's psychology of you know, what these spiritual traditions have been teaching for thousands of years. Yeah, but I feel like this is – I'm going to get back to my own uh, uh, neuroses here because whatever. It's my podcast. Um, the – I feel like, you know, I, I've put a lot of energy into and time into meditating, and I'm only seven years into it. And, and you said that it took you 10 years to stop pounding your head against the wall. So maybe I have a little ways to go. Um, but I, I, and I found it to be enormously useful, way more for the record than 10%. Um, and, but I don't know that I'm in a flow state that often. Mm-hmm. I don't see, and I don't think of flow as binary. What you're describing with letting the senses rip, I think in any moment we can either be contracting or expanding. And if we even just drop into that experience, once we can calibrate what contracting versus expanding feels like in our experience, then we can start to drop into just noticing in any one moment, oh, what I just did, did that lead to contraction? What I just did, did that lead to expansion? And so I think of it more of a continuum of we can be constantly moving outward or we can be contracting more and more into a little, you know, neutron star. Does it does it lead to something called enlightenment? I don't know. But it sure feels good. 
are you concerned with the issue of enlightenment? Are you trying to get enlightened? Do you think this is something that people should be thinking about? Well, I think if we try to get enlightened, we can guarantee that we won't get there. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. Right. So I've kind of let that uh, do its own thing and certainly am aiming toward, I mean, I think the idea about enlightenment is is described in many different ways, but one is about, you know, ending suffering. And if if suffering is caused by this contracted taking things personally, any moment that I can see when I'm doing that and let go of that, I'm moving toward enlightenment, whatever, you know, if we think of that conceptually. Right, whatever that even means. Right, but experientially, in that moment, it's we're already we've already let go and i think this is where it's really interesting to look at the like the zen traditions and the um even the tibetan traditions where you know they talk about we're already enlightened and you know joseph even talks about both and where we can work toward it and we can all, also wake up to moments where there are no boundaries right so there are just to fill that out a little bit so joseph our teacher comes from the old school of buddhism where there are actually like pretty distinct landmarks that one hits along the way where you have these experiences of nirvana um that culminate in allegedly in full enlightenment where greed hatred and delusion has been utterly uprooted uh, from the mind without remainder. Um, uh, however, there are many schools of Buddhism where they actually argue that you're already enlightened. All it is is a matter of just clearing away the detritus and you and it's right here, right now. Joseph actually has a kind of an ecumenical view, which mm-hmm. is you can do you can think of both of these. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, it sounds to me, if I recall, that your attitude is don't get too hung up on hitting uh, uh, landmarks or whatever. Just it's about uh, uh, how do you, how are you expand, expanding or contracting right now? Right. And if we're getting hung up on hitting some landmark, we can notice the likelihood of being contracted in that moment. <laughs> yes. So that becomes the practice. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. It's like the it's a catch-22. You can't hit any landmarks if you're trying to hit the landmarks. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me ask you about another interesting aspect of your research, which we haven't talked about, which is the the aspect of your research, frankly, that's really made the most headlines, which is that you developed a, a system of, of neurofeedback for meditators. So starting in fMRI machines, brain scanners, the big metal tubes, you put people in there, including yourself, and uh, but you actually really, really focused on... Uh, other people, including a group of very, very experienced meditators, and and you uh, allowed them to see the brain activity in a key part of the brain while they were meditating. Mm-hmm. So you can you just tell us about about what the study entailed and what you were looking for? Sure. And it wasn't just Wednesday. This was about this is probably five years of work that led up to it and is ongoing now. Uh, when we found those behavioral signals with our smoking cessation program, that emboldened me to say, okay, let's look at what's going on. And and one of my advisors said, you know, why don't you look at meditators' brains to see what's happening? And I, I, at the time, I was like, well, I'm sure somebody's done that. And we looked into the literature and, you know, there had been some early work by Richie Davidson's lab uh, that had looked a little bit at that, but with small samples. And so we said, well, let's, you know, we're, I, I was at Yale at the time and there, you know, we were a couple of hours from the Insight Meditation Society. So we, we recruited a fair number of People from around the That's area. That's Joseph's retreat center. Right. So, yeah. Okay. Right. So, um, you know, we had some some access, um, and also, you know, there was experienced folks in the Northeast 
that we could bring in. And the question, we asked a simple question. We said, if we teach a novice meditator three different types of meditation that morning, and we teach, and we have experienced meditators do those same meditations in the scanner, how different are their brains? And the first thing we found was that their brains aren't actually that different, which was a big shock to me. Um, we had carefully controlled, you know, matched our samples so that we wouldn't, you know, there wouldn't be any educational differences or anything or age differences because those can make a, a you know, give you a false reading in your scans. It, so not many differences. The other thing we found was that there was nothing in the brain that showed an increased inactivation, which was something we were expecting to find. Inactivation of what? Of any, so we looked across the entire brain and we said, what part of the brain gets increased in activity during meditation. So does it go up? Does it get activated during meditation? And we found that there were no brain regions that increased activity. Well, that tells you something, that it's not about efforting. Yes. And that, but at the time I was looking, because I was efforting at the time (laughs) myself. So this is kind of the me-search quality to research. I was like, well, I'm doing something. So they must be doing something. And I was doing something that probably wasn't the <laughs> practice. And so they were pointing out, hey, you know, here's a, you know, here's an, here's something to pay attention to more. When we then said, well, what differences are there? There were only about four brain regions that came out between these two groups that were different. And we were particularly interested in commonalities amongst different practices because if we found commonalities, then we could find some core that could be useful not just for one specific practice but for a bunch of different practices. And this is where this uh, brain network called the default mode network came in. There was a particular brain region called the posterior cingulate cortex, which is a main hub of the default mode network. Which we, uh, which can has been. Can you explain what the default mode network is? Sure. The default mode network was discovered by Mark Rakel's group uh, at Washington University in St. Louis. Actually, while I was in grad school there, I didn't know the research that they were doing, and they were using a task that they called base or a resting state, where the the instruction was lay still and don't do anything in particular. And they wanted a task that was easy, that people could learn quickly um, because it's expensive to have people in a scanner and that could be universal. So we're going to use this as a baseline task and then compare other cognitive tasks to it because we always look at relative changes in brain activity from a baseline. And they started seeing these brain regions get activated over and over and over. And there was this network that they couldn't explain. And they actually sat on their data for two years, I believe, before he published it in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences as his inaugural paper. So he was getting inaugurated into the National Academy, which is like winning the gold gold medal in the Olympics for scientists. And you get one free paper, basically, where, you know, it's peer-reviewed, but, you know, they kind of pat you on the back and say, good job, you know, we'll kind of peer-review this. So he put this, he put it in, and it's now one of the most highly cited papers in all of neuroimaging because it's been reproduced so many times. And what they found, and over the last 15 years, they've now, we've now the the field has now uncovered that this network is self-referential so when we're thinking about past or future when we're craving basically anything uh, when we, even physiologic thirst which is just, which is interesting we can unpack that more later but even when we're ruminating about something so when you're beating yourself up uh, you're likely activating your default mode network and in particular the posterior cingulate cortex so this is what this default mode network is and it's they call it the default mode because this is, seems to be what we default to mm. and what we you know if you if you have 10 minutes on the subway 
you know, are you, what do you default to? Probably thinking about something related to you. You're checking your phone. Which, yes. Same thing. Yeah, same thing. So this is the, the background in terms of what the default mode network is. It, our findings showed that both the medial prefrontal cortex and the posterior cingulate were decreased in, in um, experienced meditators. So their brain regions got more quiet. Both while they were meditating and not meditating, Well, right? we, we couldn't look at not meditating because that was our baseline condition oh. for activity, but we could look at connectivity, how these brain regions were talking to each other. And this may be harder to explain on the radio in terms of how, you know, how all those connectivity differences were coming out. But basically, these experienced meditators seem to have a different default mode, even when they're not meditating compared to meditating. So in terms of connectivity, how the brain regions are talking to each other. And basically, there seems to be a self-monitoring brain region that is looking out for the emergence of self. I'm just kind of telling a story about this. This may not be completely accurate, but this is the hypothesis that we have. That it monitors for the emergence of self, for example, when we get contracted, when the posterior cingulate gets activated, you know, that during that contraction. And it says, do you really want to do that? Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we can... Skinner box. Yeah, basically. But you need to pay attention to be able to have that Skinner box work. So with we looked more carefully in, at that when this is where we started doing real-time neurofeedback. So we could do these neurophenomenologic studies where we could link subjective experience to people's brain activity. Meaning you'd put people in a brain scanner and they would meditate and they could see what was happening in in their um, default mode network in real time. Mm-hmm. Yes. We, basically answering the age-old question, am I meditating correctly? Moving in that direction. Okay. <laughs> Moving in that direction. Because, right, we, we have to be humble about what we actually know about the brain. Yes, yes. So what we could do is for the first time, uh, it, this hadn't been done much before, and I'm not sure if it had been done in cognitive neuroscience, to actually bring the, the subjective experience with brain activity. So often we'll have people do a task and then we'll measure their brain activity and then afterwards we'll do the analysis and say, okay, they did this task and it was related to this brain region, so therefore, you know, this must be happening. And we can, there's this big problem called reverse inference where we then look at a brain region and say, oh, that brain region was activated, therefore they must have been doing this. Well, that's a big leap often. And so we can say, well, let's forget any cognitive leaps. Let's just see if this is true. And that's what we were doing these first studies with, was to say, okay, look at a graph. So we have people meditate while they're in the scanner. They're meditating with their eyes open, and they're meditating generally on their breath. And we show them this graph that shows increased or decreased activity in the posterior cingulate cortex. And we say, just check in with the graph from time to time to see how well it correlates with your experience. So we could then link these two together. And in these first studies, we were finding a very high correlation between people getting caught up in their experience and the posterior cingulate getting activated, and when they were concentrated on their breath and the posterior cingulate getting deactivated. So that was really reassuring to us that this brain region was actually linking to their subjective experience. But we found something really fascinating, which was it wasn't just about concentration. It was about the quality of concentration. So somebody could be curious about something that was happening in their experience, and they didn't have to be focused on a specific object. That curiosity 
was also showing decreased activation. And people were even reporting, you know, just noticing thoughts go by. They were one person said, you know, the less I tried to do anything, the bluer it went, mm-hmm. the, the more the mm-hmm. brain region went down. And so we're starting to understand what Yoda is talking about. Right. Try not uh, do or do not. There is no try. So we're starting to see this is where we started to get the hypothesis that it's about the contraction um, not only in experience, but this contraction was lining up with the posterior cingulates um, activity. And then it said, oh, well, we said, well, how does this line up with the self-reference? This may be an experiential self because contraction, again, like we talked about earlier, contraction demarcates us relative to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. then all these pieces started coming together more and more and more. And it was a really fascinating time. You know, we did this for about two years. And <laughs> I remember even testing out loving kindness, you know, when we were first testing the scanner out. Which is a specific kind of meditation. Right. So yeah. loving kindness practice, you know, I had a grant reviewer once say, um, you know, uh, there's this can't be related to self-referential brain regions because there must be somebody doing something. And so I wanted to test that myself. And we, you know, I looked and with loving kindness practice that, you know, I was looking at my own brain activity and the the thing took a nosedive. It, you know, it got much more quiet in my posterior singlet as my loving kindness practice kind of just ballooned out. So I first was doing it for the people in our control room and then it just like took off, you know, and I'm, I'm using this hand gesture of expansion. It felt really expanded. And that's where my posterior singlet was getting quiet. And so here, even with loving kindness practice, you know, there can be a rote, you know, I'm going to do loving kindness. That's how I first started doing loving kindness myself was like, I'm going to use this as a concentration practice. I'm going to send good vibes to all living beings, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And when I learned it's just about tapping into that expanding quality in the heart, then it just kind of took a life of its own. And I was like, oh, this is loving kindness. Oh, and this is juicy. <laughs> this feels great. Well, so so let me let me again do the self-referential thing of telling my little story because I so you you adapted this technology, this real-time neurofeedback to uh to a a less expensive and less cumbersome version which involved instead of being in a scanner, which is like a thousand bucks an hour or something like that, mm-hmm. um, an EEG rig. So, like, you put these sensors on the brain and you do it based on electrical activity in the brain. And um, so, I, a couple times I went up there. I think one time I went up there and tested it and it wasn't quite right, mm-hmm. even though it was telling me I was meditating correctly. So, I felt really good. But then I went back up again two and a half years ago <laughs> and I did a big long test with you guys. And the conclusion was like, crystal clear that i was activating the pcc i was act, i was i was that i wasn't meditating correctly i was crestfallen and it's still messing with me this conclusion and it's what dr- drove me to get very 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 interested in the effortlessness of mm-hmm. awareness that mm-hmm. there's really nothing to do and uh, nowhere to go it's it, all you have to do is let your senses rip and you will notice whatever's happening right now um, but that experience in the scanner, I remember both of us were kind of just like, oh, man. <laughs> yeah. I was a little, I was like, oh, what do I say? <laughs> <laughs> I was so bummed. I mean, and I, what do you think was going wrong? Well, the first thing I'll say is remember, you know, <laughs> if you were like 40 years into your practice, you know, you 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 had only been practicing a little while Yeah, there was like point. four so, years, five years, yeah. So th- – I don't see this as a, you know, oh man point. This is like great. We're, you know, we're 
helping to play with this now Mm -hmm. as compared to 20 years down the Mm -hmm. road. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing I'll say. And the second thing I'll say is I have no idea what was going on, but let's get you back in now that you've been playing with this curiosity. And we could even have you do some curiosity practices in this game. I'm getting all excited. Like, (laughs) yes, let's try that out and, and see what happens especially as we've refined the practices and we've even brought in some more uh, measures that we can, or some more activity, I should say, some feedback measures that we can even bring in with what we've got. Because that was a pretty, you know, it's a, that was our version 1.0. The problem for me is that, you know, I'm one of these people who's really hung up on am I meditating correctly? It's a very mm-hmm. common, co- I find it when we do corporate research for for the 10% Happier app and we try to tap into what people's secret fears are around meditation. One of the big ones is I'm not doing it right. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a huge one for me, even though I hang out with meditation teachers all the time. And and so I, I, but it's still this doubt is always arising in me. And a lot of it keys back to what my brain be showing in Judd's EEG (laughs) rig right now. I I mean, like, it's just, it dogs me, even when I'm on a long retreat, maybe even especially when when I'm on a long retreat. So yeah, it probably would be good to get me back in there. And- at those moments that that doubt arises, yeah. you can notice what it feels like. Oh, is it contracting or yes, expanding? Yes, yes. So in those, so again, bow to those as teachers. Like, oh, here's doubt. Awesome, as compared to oh, what do my brain? What does my brain look like? Because I'm getting caught. The, the wondering what my brain looks like is a fact. Is a form of clinging, clinging to my ex- self experience. Me and my brain. Yes, 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 yes. No, I'm aware of that. I think actually, what I've noted when the doubt comes up is just notice it as doubt. Yeah. It takes the teeth right out of it. Yeah, there you go. But but it just happens a lot because I've I now have this it's You might a, have grooved that pathway a little I've bit. I've grooved that <laughs> pathway. Um I we've we've spoken a long time really without really letting me uh without me letting you talk with at any great length specifically about the book. Uh, although I I should say that if you read the book and you should um you will hear Lots of this stuff, but let's just direct. Let's just attack it head on. Um, wh- wh- what made you want to write this book, and what it, what do you think it will do for the reader? You know, there was the book arose out of I think I'm just going to say favorable conditions, which I'll unpack. A couple of years before I wrote the book, uh, you know, some publishers had contacted me and said, you know, we need a book on addiction and mindfulness. And I actually had talked to John Kabat-Zinn, and I was like, you know, you've written books. What's, and he's like, dude, caution, caution, warning. You know, it, it can consume your life, so be ready to write a book. Yeah, except for if you can do it in two weeks. Well, and so at that point, I wasn't ready to write a book. And so I said, no, 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 no. And eventually – so that was about two years before I wrote it. Um, last December – I, uh, December of 2015, I was going to do some self-retreat and... Meaning you were going to just cloister yourself in your house and do a retreat for a month or whatever. Right. Yeah, I'd found that um, going to a retreat center was very helpful. And I'd done a number of, you know, month-long meditation retreats at a a self-retreat center. But I'd also then started learning that when I'm right in front of my phone and my computer and everything in my house, that's where the rubber meets the road. So there was a a quality of practice for me that was really helpful to do that. And so I was going to do that a bit. Um, My wife had 
given me as a Christmas present, um, you know, that I, w- I could stay home and retreat, go on retreat um, rather than um, going to, you know, going to visit her family at Christmas. Not I love visiting her family and all, but there was, you know, this was something I don't get to do that often now is to go on long self-retreat. So I was setting gearing up to do that. And then, you know, another publisher had contacted me and then I, um, I had basically gone back um, to, you know, I, I ended up publishing with Yale University Press. There was a wonderful editor there, uh, Jennifer Banks, who has, pr- you know, practice experience and, and is very interested in these types of things and has published some wonderful books like Stephen Batchelor's books. So it just seemed like, you know, the conditions were right. And I can say it, it felt at that point like this book was ready to come out. We were, you know, hitting this opioid epidemic with addictions. Um, our work had kind of solidified. We'd done a bunch, you know, all this research that we talked about had kind of come more to fruition where I was feeling more confident that, you know, we could repeat our experiments and all of this. And so it was like, well, let's see if I can add an element to retreat where it's not just sitting and walking, but sitting, walking, writing. And so I wrote the introduction to the book before going on retreat to make sure I could write because I'd never written a book and my editor gave me the thumbs up and I wrote most of or if not all of what's now chapter two before going on retreat and then my instruction to myself was only write if you're in flow Hmm. or as close you know in the expanded phase and just let the writing happen and just see what comes out and so I would you know I would sit and I would walk and then you know, when it was right, I would just write uh, when the conditions were favorable or when it just felt like, okay, it's time to write. And so I just would open up my laptop and just let, you know, just let it write. And I'd, I'd written out kind of chapter headings before that, but that was it. Um, and then it just let the chapters rip. And <laughs> it came out in two weeks. I mean, I, I, I'm actually finding it less surprising now because I notice when I go on retreat, it is the most fertile period of creativity mm-hmm. because once the churning, looping, fizzing mind slows down, all the ideas come up. Yes. Now, I have actually come back from retreats and looked at my diary and realized that I had a lot of bad ideas, but but a lot of good ideas come there. too. So, what is for the reader? What I mean, I can I can describe why I think it's incredibly useful because you you break down the ways in which we're all addicted. You know, it's not just opioids or cocaine or food. It's technology. You get into things like technology, addiction to distraction, addiction to ourselves. You talk about your own addictions, love, for as an as an example, thinking. You talk about anger. Um, So it really breaks down the ways in which we're all addicted and then gives us the keys to the jail cell. It it tries to move us in that direction, yes. That was the aim, was how can we unpack how we all learn, you know, this natural reward-based learning process and the whole continuum from the utility of it, like learning how to tie our shoes, to the far end of addiction where we're doing some behavior despite adverse consequences so that we can all see in our own lives how we might be addicted to this or this or this. And then like you're talking about, you know, not to show people <laughs> that our lives are a mess, but that we can actually bring simple awareness practices and especially this paying attention to contraction and expansion as a simple way to start un- unwinding those loops. So this would be a good time to pick up the issue that you tabled or shelved earlier, which is the difference, and this is a key thing in a, in a human life to be aware of, the difference between excitement 
and happiness. Mm-hmm. We mistake one for the other, and this can actually lead to addiction. So can you uh, unpack that a little bit? Yes, and and I'll caveat that by saying this is speculation, but this is you know this is my working hypothesis, and, and certainly a Buddhist hypothesis for sure. Yes, absolutely. So building on on that and just kind of reiterating what a lot of folks have described earlier. So if we go back to that contraction versus expansion, there can be you know it's it's more obvious with negative emotions, so anger, fear, um, rage, uh, pr- you know even pride can have a, a contracted quality like look at me mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and there are even studies showing that people describe there's a there's this hot spot in our chest that 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 these all share when we look at positive emotions it's less clear so the most clear ones as we've talked about are joy curiosity uh, and love that's untainted I'm gonna say so right as opposed to uh, acquisitive romantic love right right so if there's you know if the, if the, if there's love where we're right in the throes of an early romantic relationship you know that infatuation stage that's like being on cocaine you know where we're we're fidgety we're restless we're constantly thinking about when we're going to see the person when we're going to get their texts or tweets or whatever so there's this excited quality to experience that that overlaps very much with what i see in my patients and so when we look at that, that excitement is actually, you know, dukkagenic. It causes suffering. Dukkha being the ancient Indian word for suffering. Right. Yeah. Dukkagenic. I like that. Dukkagenic. So we often mistake. We're like, oh, I'm in the throes of a romantic relationship. This is awesome. And our coworkers look at us like, and you haven't gotten any work done for two weeks. How awesome is this really? Because we're not paying attention. We're, we're high on that idea of the other and the the difference between uh, excitement is is finite you know like it it, you 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 burn out or as our teacher joseph says like how much ice cream can you really eat could you have sex for seven straight days you know you can overdo things that are exciting joy sort of a wholesome feeling of happiness which is expansion expansive you really can't get enough of that stuff. And that is a key thing to look for in your experience and actually can tell you a lot about compulsive addictive behavior. Right. And that also goes back to the intrinsic reward of joy versus the extrinsic reward of I must have X to be happy. Right. So joy, in order to be joy, has to be right here and readily available. Well, I, that's the only place that I've found it, yes. As opposed to it, somebody handing you a check or something like that, which not to say that we shouldn't enjoy those extrinsic uh, sources of pleasure, but be aware that they can lead to addiction. Right. We're just not caught up in those external things like, okay, great. You know, I can pay my rent or I can pay my mortgage. That's never a bad thing. But when we're like, oh, now awesome, I'm going to go buy a Tesla, you know, different story. Different story, if especially, I mean, there's nothing wrong with necessarily getting a Tesla, but if you become so addicted to acquiring more and more money that every check you get actually doesn't give you any more dopamine, that's, then you're on the loop. Right, then we're on the loop. Um, such, a, such a pleasure to sit here and interview you. Um, you have so many interesting things that you've done and continue to do. Where can people find more information about you? Yes, there's The Craving Mind, which is uh, as uh, we're, we're recording this before the book comes out, but we'll be posting when the book posted, uh, uh, when the book is available from Yale University Press. Um, but you also you have to you have a 
at least two TED Talks that I'm aware of. I do. There's a TED Talk uh, that's on the TED site itself called The Simple Way to Break a Bad Habit. There was a TEDx talk that I gave uh, a couple of years before that one that's just on YouTube. I think it's called You're Already Awesome. Just get out of your own way. <laughs> I love that one. <laughs> uh, and then also um, uh, the the two apps that you've got, and you're, you're going to be doing more, um, uh, Eat Right Now and Craving to Quit. Right. So the websites for them are cravingtoquit.com and goeatrightnow.com, as in go eat correctly in the present moment. Right. Gotcha. Um Anything else that we should see? Uh, any other um, uh, entry points to the uh, Judd Brewer universe? I have a completely self-referential website called judsonbrewer.com that links to those as well as my research gig at the Center for Mindfulness. So that's kind of a, a, a first pass that you know people can find links to all of these other things. Awesome. Great interview. Great book. Really appreciate it. And thanks for having me. This has been really fun. Total pleasure. Okay, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please make sure to uh, subscribe, rate us. And uh, if you want to suggest topics we should cover or guests uh, we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter at Dan B. Harris. I also want to thank heartily the people who produce this podcast and really do pretty much all the work. Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, Andrew Kalb, Steve Jones, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. Uh, I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.